Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with recurring and continual friend of the show, Chaz. And today, we're going to talk about Changeling the Lost. First, Chaz, how you doing? And what's your relationship with Changeling the Lost as a line? I'm doing pretty well today. And uh, this is a, a well-timed interview, since I am um, elbows deep in Changeling the Lost at the moment, uh, working on second drafts for the upcoming supplement for it, The Hedge. I have played a, a number of short campaigns in Changeling, including one that is being recorded for future release at some point. It is among my favorites of the Chronicles of Darkness. And actually, the first pitch that I ever sent in to well, White Wolf at the time was a Changeling the Lost pitch. It is a game that is is uh, near and dear to my heart, If even though I have not gotten to play it uh, as much as I might have liked. Okay. You are a fan of the game. You have written for it formally, and also you've done Storyteller Vault supplements for it, from what I understand, correct? Yes, that's true. With the advent of entitlements in Oak, Ash, and Thorn, the Kickstarter supplement for second edition Changeling, I have taken the template or the format that they present in Oak, Ash, and Thorn, and working with Stephen Pope, we are updating those entitlements to the second edition format. Not all as entitlements, but thinking about what is the archetype this entitlement in first edition is presenting, and what type of organization does it best fit in second edition. So that's been a fun project. We are currently working on volume three, which will close out the core book entitlements from Changing the Lost First Edition. Nice. I don't know what a lot of those words mean, but I imagine by the time we're done, I will. Regardless, if those words mean something to you, and it sounds interesting, links will be in the show notes. Remember, everything you grab in the Storyteller Vault, we get a small percentage of, and it supports the show. So thanks for everyone who clicks on that. Uh, so what is Changeling the Lost? What do you play in the game? Changing the Lost is in part a game about recovering from trauma, and the framing they do this with, the kind of supernatural narrative and place in the Chronicles of Darkness, is that you are playing people who were kidnapped by the true fae into the fairy realm and managed to escape. The experience has left you scarred and left you touched by your time in fairy transforming you into a changeling, a creature that is both mortal and fae. This is probably an episode where more so than most, it may make sense to do a content warning. In a discussion of changeling, Chaz, what do you think are some touchstones that we should be aware of and be ready to either avoid if necessary or be sensitive when discussing it either in a podcast or at our tables? Well, the true fae aren't great about consent. Um, <laughs> It is inherently a game about a being that has vast power over you, taking you away against your will or tricking you into going away with them and inflicting trauma. Mm -hmm. And you have escaped. So that part of the game is is over, but there is, uh, there is an ever-present threat of that abuser returning. Uh, so Changeling does a good job about handling this with care and giving you tools to handle with care. It's also a game about questioning your own reality. We'll talk about clarity later on. Uh, but you can take almost psychic injuries that that unmoor you from what's real. So like real true gaslighting uh, is a, a thing that, that can happen in this game. And like, if that's a trigger, maybe stay away from that part of it, or at least handle that part with care. 
And I mean, this this covers the full length of things that can involve uh, trauma in your time with a true fae. It could involve quite literal physical torture for prolonged protracted periods of time. Uh, it can in- involve subtle emotional manipulation, forced tedium and repetition, all sorts of not great things. But I mean, the game starts, maybe with the exception of the prelude, with you having in some way escaped beyond that. So in this process of escape, metaphysically, what makes a changeling different from a regular mortal? First, they've been changed by their time in Arcadia. Uh, the true fae have molded them and they have had to adapt to the realm that they are in, uh, away from the mortal world. And that is a realm of, of oaths and relationships and stories. And so often whatever your role there is kind of seeps into you. So if your true fae master kept you as a hunting hound, you will take on aspects of a hunting hound. If you were kept as a lantern, you may find yourself ablaze, uh, glowing with light or fire. In your escape, you may also change yourself in order to escape, and that describes your seeming in many cases. Uh, For example, said lantern-used person may escape as an elemental uh, and, and keep that blazing fire, or in their escape may have to douse their flame and become an inky black reflection of what they once were, becoming a darkling. So your time in fairy and your manner of escape kind of shape the being that you become once you escape back into the mortal world. Additionally, your flight from Arcadia back to the mortal world is through the Hedge, a realm that bounds the two worlds. It's a psychoactive realm that that grasps at fragments of your soul, which get not quite shredded, but pieces cut as you dash through the thorns of the hedge, returning to the mortal world. And that leaves gaps in your memory, leaves you changed in the experience. But between the two, while you have lost little pieces of your soul, you have gained the relationship to Weird, the force of magic and reciprocity for uh, the Fae, and can call on magics, can enter the hedge, can weave dreams, and all of your other neat changeling powers. So that would be almost analogous in Mage if in the process of awakening, some portion of your mortal self were torn away, and that is what your avatar more or less filled in, is this weird kind of alien thing. Are those bits of weird sentient, and is weird a force that is ever explained in the game? So weird has changed a little bit between 1st and 2nd edition, and in both cases it is not, not quite fully explained. In the first edition, it's a force of fate, of what is destined, of falling into the proper place to tell the story. Whereas in second edition, it's a a force of reciprocity and balance that supports your oaths. And all of your magic powers come from like you tapping into primordial oaths that the Fae have made with entities around the universe, or that you can forge yourself with those entities. But weird is the power that binds all of it. It is the fate to the Scion pantheons. In first edition, it was very much that. In in second edition, it's a little bit weirder, if you'll pardon the, the reuse of a similar sounding word. So you've mentioned the true Fae as these ultimately powerful things. Do we get any information about their nature? And if they're so powerful, why are they abducting mortals? The true fae are interlopers to the realm that they rule. 
They are somewhat alien, capricious beings. Their, their motivation as a group is somewhat undefined. They define themselves by their titles, which are aspects that they act to. And the more titles they can claim, the more powerful they are. One title that many true fae claim is that of Keeper, which requires them to keep mortals. That is the title that they take up to become the true fae who kidnap you, though different true fae may have different motivations in doing so. For example, in the Changeling game that we're recording, uh, my keeper has kidnapped me to act as a witness to his great deeds, and I am meant to record and uh, document uh, his return. So his capriciousness is not directed at me, but I am brought along as part of his entourage. Uh, in another example in the core book, there is the, the true fae, Grandmother Grandmother, who wants to uh, keep a, a set of changelings as a perfect family in the woods, uh, forcing each of them into an archetypal fairy tale role of the, uh, as a member of that family. It sounds like titles kind of are a thing that the true fae want. Why? That's never really explained. It, it is what gives them power. It is what defines them. And they're described as selfish beings who, who don't see how what they do inflicts harm on others because they are so self-absorbed. The true fae to me are some of the most fascinating entities that exist in both worlds in terms <laughs> of the idea that you have these nigh possibly infinite beings that only by, and this is kind of the 1E explanation, only by taking titles upon themselves do they have the ability to define themselves in such a way that they can exist as conscious entities in reality. That only by undertaking oaths and titles do they have the ability to bind themselves into a form. And once they are in that form, they play this great game of kind of trying to thieve and modify the titles of others by forcing them into acting out or breaking their oaths. The idea being a true fae that breaks an oath loses that aspect of themselves. And if you can get a true fae to break their last oath, which they will never do willingly, and they are quite cunning, they will simply cease to be. I think it is a fascinating thing. I like when there are very great entities out there that do have that one weird trick to dispel them. It's up there with like, yes, the beast does have a soft spot in its 435 metric ton body. It just happens to be in their second heart. So if you can get to it, yes. Yes, you can take them down, but the effort to do so is uh, non-trivial, as we would say in, in the mathematics world. And also kind of the idea that the true fae lack the ability to be original, that they require humans or humanity to create something new. At best, they can act out existing stories, so they need the dreams and beliefs of mortals to do anything new. So the reason they have to surround themselves with mortals is otherwise they are stuck to this very banal kind of reproductive creativity and they don't quite feed off the dreams of mortals, but they, they require their newness to act out the stories that is kind of the currency of status among the true fae. And at least for me, literally everything I have said so far, we can just take and shove into mage and make them... <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> and just, just 
take it wholesale of crossover episodes, we have done the most for Changeling just because the territory is so ripe. And in Mage, we have the idea of the Maya, the realms of dream, which we never really get information on outside of a few references to the land of Nod and Hollywood and so on in uh, Book of Worlds or, yeah, I think it's in Book of Worlds. And that kind of left me meh compared to that. So uh, where do the True Fae live? The True Fae live in Arcadia, which is a realm of domains that are defined by its masters. And the interesting piece added in 2nd edition is that Arcadia did not originally belong to the True Fae. It belonged to one of their greatest and fiercest uh, servants, who are now called the Huntsmen. But they invaded this land, they took it over, and they have inflicted their own definition and overlordship on it. Uh, and this is a, a land of oaths, of interrelationships. It is not a land where you get sustenance from eating food because of the chemical makeup of that food, but where uh, it is because you are implicitly signing on to the pact between the true fae and the essence of fruit trees that fruit will sustain you. And so to even survive there, you have to agree to the realm's rules, which is part of what shapes you um, into a, a changeling. Again, this is something we can just take and shove into mage, where you have a higher umbral realm or a domain, uh, D-E-M-E-S-N-E, -E -E, or other shallowing place where to do so, you have to create a pact with the food that you eat for it to sustain you or the air that you breathe to keep it there. And by returning from this realm with those contracts in place, your character could now have the ability to eat bricks or gain a full meal of sustenance from a single grape because you have this agreement kind of with these greater forces. I also like the idea of there being an umbral realm where somebody had obviously kicked out the previous residents. And that is something we never really explore in Mage. Sometimes well, there'll be an abandoned space, but we don't really have many examples of like new boss kicked out, kicked out old boss. Another important aspect of it is the way that the True Fae define their own realms within Arcadia. Uh, like I said, they have titles that are kind of telling stories. So with that example, True Fae of Grandmother Grandmother, uh, she lives in a cottage in the middle of a dark forest, and so you have the archetypal fairy tale cottage surrounded by the archetypal fairy tale dark wood. But they are not bound to be fairy tale things, they can really be anything. So I've heard interesting ideas of presenting a true fae who is like an alien abduction situation where their, their realm is a traveling flying saucer. And they have all of the strange kind of sci-fi elements in there. You still have to travel through the hedge to get there, but it doesn't have to be fairy tale or even archaic trappings to it. And interestingly, in Mage, the creators for second edition, when the Zigrogler and the Kaluan were kind of introduced, said, how do we have modern changeling stories? And the answer is alien abductions. And Mage even has a traveling umbral realm, a, a high umbral spire of the greys known as the operating theater. Uh, so where is fairy? Where is the realm of the true fae, like cosmologically? It depends on which angle you're looking at the cosmology from. There are a lot of other realms in Chronicles of Darkness, uh, once you start looking at all of the lines. But it is 
away from the mortal world. It may have some relation to the supernal realm of Arcadia, but that connection has always been left as a little bit unclear. Arcadia being the supernal realm, one of the five supernal realms that true magic comes from in Blue Mage, that is inhabited by fairies and all about fate and and time and relationships and bindings. So like there's some definite parallels there. But the f- true fae of Changeling's Arcadia are not the supernal true fae of Mage's Arcadia. Um, so if there is a relationship between them, perhaps the Arcadia of the true fae is a reflection of supernal Arcadia. But again, not not quite clear. The supernal realms are kind of metaphysically above the world. I would say true fae Arcadia is orthogonal to the world and divided from it by the hedge, which is the other realm boundary that you ha- you must pass through to reach Arcadia. The hedge also has a relationship with dreams in that there are stretches of the hedge called the dreaming roads that are the bits that connect different mortal dreams. And if you find the gates in the hedge that let you get there, you can get to this this part and like get into dreams. And that is also connected to the mage dream realm, but not quite the same. The hedge acts as a barrier to the mind realms in mage, as well as being a way to, to get to the dreams, even though mages can't get into the hedge themselves. They have to pass right through it. Do the true fae ever leave fairy? They do. They travel the hedge as kind of lords that all the inhabitants of the hedge are somewhat afraid of uh, because of their overwhelming power. And they can also travel into the mortal world, uh, where they don't have quite the same dominance that they do over Arcadia or the Hedge to warp the world around them. But they still have tremendous power that that they can uh, use and trickery that they can turn to. They can take on immortal guys and often do that to lure in victims uh, to become changelings. And they they even have presented like exiled true fae who are in the mortal world to stay safe from their rivals um, in in the first edition of Changeling. So it sounds like to convert to mage, the true fae have the ability to materialize. They can appear on the other side of the gauntlet or alternatively, if we want to, we can posit them as being entirely different entities that don't even need to bother with that. So we could have a character that runs into a slightly depowered true fae or a lost true fae or one that's on the down low and suddenly the characters are roped into, hey, we want to take out the Duke of 10,000 names uh, whose smile wreaths the, the morning sun rhymed with frost or something something like that. So the characters could inadvertently become agents of another true fae trying to take out a, a rival or antagonist or to claim the title from them. And it seems like it's one of those things where you could get absolutely bizarre bullshit, where it could be like, for sure, there is a homeless man that goes at this particular park that bays in the fountain every Tuesday morning. And when he puts his coat down, you need to pluck a single petal from the rose upon his lapel or something like that. And that is <laughs> the holder of the title of, of the court of knives or something like that. That's neat. So you talked about the hedge. What What is the hedge like besides it just being kind of a border realm? There's kind of two defining characteristics of the hedge. Uh, One is the thorns. And this can be like a classic giant hedge with thorns. Or it can be more metaphorical. It is an environment that is detrimental to you and can cut you. So it could be cracked ice with like uh, ice stalactites and, and ice shards that 
that cut you um, and reflect in a mirror-like maze. And that is the other characteristic, is that it is maze-like. It is hard to find your way around. And in second edition, it is psycho-reactive. So the hedge does not have paths that you can map, but the paths through the hedge change by your intention. What does that mean, change by your intention? Is it the strong-willed who clearly know where they want to go can do so, or something else? It is a characteristic of the weird that that you can use your glamour, uh, which is weird juice, to put change into the hedge if you can create that change with enough excellence. Is excellence a capital E term, or is it just... No. A, okay, no. You, um, you need to change good. Can you give me an example of this? Is there is there like a system for it or? There is. The system is called hedge spinning. And basically the way it works is that as you are taking actions in the hedge, you, you can take regular actions and then that works like normal. Or you can take actions with the intention of hedge spinning, in which case the excess successes on your roll can be used to implement changes in the environment. And it sounds pretty fascinating because to me, the hedge, when I first read about it, you could just replace the gauntlet with the hedge if you wanted to. If you wanted to make it so that stepping sideways were not just a three-dot spirit effect, but were something maybe other people could do, navigating the hedge to get into the umbra, maybe each time you go to a different location, there is some sort of uh, mini scene where you explain what navigating the hedge there is like, and you've mapped out a new route and or maybe have to make an agreement with something to get a reliable path and, and to me that is much more interesting than rolling a retay against the difficulty is set by the height of the gauntlet and maybe it's one of those things where characters with spirit or with patron or appropriate backgrounds have an easier time of doing it and to me the idea that the world is riddled with entrances into the hedge also allows for mortals to have access to it where there could be a group of sorcerers or uh, the hedge touched that have the ability to navigate into the other world they don't have access to the spheres. Yeah, so hedge spinning, like I said, is, is divided into subtle shifts or paradigm shifts. And subtle shifts are things like introducing a minor beneficial twist of luck or complication that is a die bonus or die penalty for a character, um, infl inflicting a tilt or condition, creating a hazard in the scene, uh, creating a new localized terrain feature, such as summoning a bridge or a wall. And then paradigm shifts are more extreme. These are things that let you find a goblin fruit. Uh, goblin fruit are the things that grow in the hedge that by the nature of growing in the hedge have some inherent magic to them. Or completely change the, the scenery, like transforming a parking lot into a sewer or making a volcano rise up within the, the, the hedge to, to burn away whatever's pursuing you. So you can do really wild uh, changes if you can, can manage it within the hedge. And is this one of those things where there is a hedge spinning skill or is it does it use a standard dice pool? Neither, actually. It is a result of everything that you do in the hedge if you are empowered by weird. So with any skill roll... Hedge spinning is a secondary effect of intention and action. So it is the successes you get beyond uh, your basic success 
that you can then put into hedge spinning. You could like make an attack, like a physical attack against someone with like strength and, and melee, and use your extra successes to have the, the thorns like rise up and attack with you. And I like the idea, though, of the hedge, because it also gives us a system for the middle umbra, which is something we've never quite gotten, or a way of changing the penumbra to maybe influence the mortal world, that it is kind of this other peripheral skill set that a mage could have, and the hedge seems like a good option for that. Is the hedge cultural at all? Does its manifestation reflect uh, mortal belief, or...? I wouldn't say it's so much that it reflects mortal belief, but it does take on characteristics of the locale. So like climate and geography and and even human geography get imported to the hedge. So one of the examples that I had from my own changeling setting is that there's a, like there's a lot of old abandoned factories mm-hmm. here in central Massachusetts. There's these giant brick buildings that have like assembly line machinery inside them and so that the the hedge locally is full of like old broken factory machine stuff that is part of the thorns and then the hedge is inhabited not by humans but by hobgoblins who are just beings that live in the hedge that have are are all manner of, of variety of weird critters how do you get into the hedge it is something that for changelings and the true fae and the huntsmen is as simple as going through a door. Any changeling has the ability to turn a door into a hedge portal by closing the door, demanding that it is a hedge portal, and opening the door again, and then they can step through into the hedge. Uh, once a doorway is made into a hedge portal, it is permanently a hedge portal, but it is dormant unless activated by its keys. And its keys can be anything thematic from a particular object or a convergence of celestial events or performing a certain ritual that opens it up and then anyone can go into the hedge. And once you are in the hedge, what is the use of being there? I mentioned goblin fruits earlier, so harvesting goblin fruits is is one. It is a great way to escape from someone who can't pursue you there if you need to get out of dodge real fast. It can also be a shortcut between places. It's not so great at getting you like across town because a journey in the hedge is equally difficult whether it is near or far, generally. But if you want to get from New York to Philadelphia, uh, you could do it in an afternoon walk instead of needing to actually drive there. Or if, for example, there's a major traffic incident and nobody can get across town, you may use the hedge as a, a shortcut or wormhole between different hedge portals. I really like the idea of taking of replacing the penumbra with the great maze or something like that, which is kind of a mix of the penumbra and the hedge that uh, certain mages may choose to to specialize in, and that may turn into an STV supplement one day. Ooh. But yeah, note to the the listenership: Chaz and I have worked on a number of projects. I'm still trying to find the STV project that Chaz and I can work on, and all of the ones <laughs> I've proffered so far, I will summarize as: Hey, Chaz, Chronicles of Darkness is pretty great. Chaz says. I know. And I say, hey, what if we did this? And Chaz goes, yes, that's called the Chronicles of Darkness. And I go, damn it. Um, And then then I go back to the drawing board. (laughs) I used the hedge in Changeling the Dreaming as part of the reason that Changeling the Dreaming changelings didn't go into the dreaming all the time is that the first layer was the hedge, which protected the dreaming from the mortal world and banality. So like it 
it's really a cool thing to add to any other realm that should be hard to get to. And I also like the idea that there are certain umbral locations that are hard to reach just because people haven't mapped the hedge there or the passageway to it has been lost or something similar. And again, there's nothing requiring it to be a giant hedge bush or to something or for it to look like the labyrinth from Labyrinth. You can uh, re reskin it as you wish. It very much feels like the Tempest from Wraith in that it is this emotional and strange place that is hazardous but periodically useful. Um, and it's yeah. just kind of an omnipresent setting piece reminding you of how implacable the world is. There are also trods through the hedge that make it easier or safer to travel. There are goblin markets that take place in the hedge where you can get weird fairy items. So that's another reason you might want to go into the hedge. Uh, many changelings build hollows, uh, safe spaces inside the hedge where it is easier to do things for them. They can create a secret safe space that is disconnected from the mortal world as a place to, to, to hide. And you can also use the hedge to reach the, the dreaming roads, uh, which lead into mortal dreams. Uh, so if you want to go and do dream magic or oneromancy, which is a thing that, the, that changelings can do, one of the ways to get to that is, is through the hedge. From what I recall, there is also a particularly useful game thing that can be found there, like kind of bits of a person that has been torn off by the hedge. You have the ability yeah. to correct. What are those again? Icons. Remember how when the uh, changelings escape from Arcadia, the hedge like pulls away bits and shreds of their soul that leave them fragmented? Icons are those bits and fragments of soul stuff that get caught on the thorns of the hedge. And because they are important, because they have significance, they form into a thing. And if you go and, and recover them, if you recover your own, it's like reclaiming a little piece of your soul and some memory or some, some knowledge is reincorporated into who you are. And if you recover it for others, you can bring it to them and give it to them as a gift. So the, this is another reason to go into, into the hedge, is to try to recover those bits of yourself that you left behind. And in Mage, that sounds like a great reason to increase the avatar background or the past life's background or to justify improving a skill or a knowledge. And that there, I imagine that there are characters that kind of act as merchants for this that might be uh, the fisher of icons or something that are particularly good at finding these bits. I also like in revised continuity the idea that the avatar storm is hit everywhere, but when it hits the hedge, little bits of avatar get hung up on it. And now there is this race to reclaim bits of it um, and you never kind of know what they are so mortals brought into it may have the ability to awaken or alternatively mages may be doing dark experiments and suddenly you have people turning into marauders or essentially getting little bits of nephondic taint from trying to retrieve bits of avatar that have been stuck into it we'd have to come up with a systematic way to do that integration because mage doesn't really have a system for like that avatar plus this avatar equals cool ranch or something like that um, but yeah it just seems kind of flush with ideas Definitely. Icons are new to second edition and are one of the things that are just oh, so, yes. so, so great. Like chef's kiss. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the Trufay and their agents kind of and the places. So you're a changeling. You made mention to contracts. What do changelings do once they have escaped to kind of stay safe? You mentioned the huntsmen who are characters that attempt to retrieve escaped changelings, which kind of serve as an omnipresent villain, if you would like them, the technocracy or the angels, as it were, that kind of retrieve them. What tools does a changeling have to stay safe? 
There are social structures that help keep changelings safe, their own society that they build. Uh, and then, of course, they have all of their cool fairy powers that they got to, to that they get as consolation for their time in Arcadia. And what are the social structures like? Um, what are they organized around? So the changelings form courts, and each court has kind of a thematic component and an emotional component. The most common court structure is that of the four seasons, so the court courts of autumn, spring, summer, and winter. And in any freehold, which is like the city or regional organization of changelings, each court has a monarch and they have some system of power sharing where one of the courts is the dominant court for some period of time. And each court is formed by a contract or a, a bargain with a powerful entity that protects the changelings uh, from the true fae in some way. It, it puts a, a requirement on the true fae before they can act against those changelings. And these are absolutely fascinating. Each one you just look at and you're like, this is spectacular. Uh, do you remember any of them off the top of your head? The one in winter is that, uh, which is the Court of Sorrow, the true fae must truly mourn um, uh, any anyone who they harm in the freehold while winter is in power. Forget the others off the top of my head. And the book has a marvelous portion where it talks about how the true fae are so selfish that they do not know how to do this. And they are wrapped up for hours doing this bizarre aping of sorrow and longing. And it's, it's, Absolutely amazing. And and another one is during the uh, summer of passion or something like that, they can only attack directly, like they must declare their intentions and why before doing so. But I mean, the notion of four seasons, is that universal or do different areas have a different set? Different areas do have different sets of courts. Uh, the seasonal courts are kind of the most common and most widespread. Uh, but there are other structures. There's like the five directional courts of like the Chinese elements and directional associations. There's an example freehold that is like the Ipswich. So on the, the coast of Massachusetts that has the tide courts. And so it's high tide, low tide, ebb tide, and flow tide are the four courts in that place. So there's a bunch of different courts that, that are presented in kind of lighter detail in the past edition, they presented a whole bunch of different courts for different places and different organizations. And many of the freehold examples around the world don't have like a full write-up of the court with contracts and everything, but have examples of what the court structure looks like in that place. And one of my favorite, I think, is the the example of what is it, Tumble Down Market, where they have the the seasonal court, the court of coins, the court of barter, the court of favors, and the court of shadowy deals. Yes. Um, and if we wanted to drag that into mage, I could see mages make contracts with umbral beings or ideas to protect them from the Nefandi or the Marauders or the Technocracy or whatever your big bad is. Do for these contracts, do the Fey do the changelings need to do anything to uphold them? Yes, they do. There's a series of, of rituals through the year that they perform to enforce these packs. The courts proper are powerful enough that even if the rituals are missed, the bargains are strong enough that they won't wane. They introduced the idea of non-traditional mantles, so it hasn't quite formed the power of a court, 
but this could be a, a bargain with a lesser powerful being that gives you enough protection, but requires more personal investment. So uh, perhaps weekly or monthly ritual to maintain the, the mantle's power and protection, uh, lest the bargain fade, and over time that becomes solidified. So yes, the bargain does need to be maintained, but for the great courts, the bargain is strong enough that if you personally miss it, it'll probably be okay. Mm -hmm. And these courts also give you both powers that protect your group, your freehold, your collection of people, um, but also there are individual benefits of that. No, that one, that a person can have a mantle unto themselves, right? Yes. So when you join a court, you take on its mantle, which is almost like a, an aura around you that is the force of your court. And you can increase that independently of your social standing within the court. It's how strongly the court's theme resonates with you. Uh, so someone who is uh, a, has a powerful mantle of the winter court is going to have an icy chill to them. Glass may take on like uh, uh, fr frost bursts as they touch it. Their skin will be cool to the touch. And if you are actually the court monarch, your your mantle will manifest a crown for you during the court's ruling season or ruling period. And so that gives you a, a number of benefits. Uh, it, it is a one to five dot merit, and, and each level gives you something different depending on which court it is. As long as you have one dot in the mantle, you also have an easier way to gain glamour. Changelings glean glamour from emotions, and it basically becomes easier to glean the matching uh, emotional glamour that's related to your court. So that's a, a good benefit. Uh, and courts give you access to court contracts. Uh, contracts are the changelings' powers, spells, if you will. Uh, and so each court has a, a series of contracts that are related to the court's themes uh, that if you are part of a court, you will be able to uh, to learn. And to me, somewhere between mantles and nimbus are what I want resonance to be in Mage the Ascension. So nimbus is the, the form one's magic kind of takes in Mage the Awakening that kind of reflects the user. So I like the idea that one could swear oneself to either an element of your paradigm or alternatively one of the spheres. And once you get three dots in the mantle of forces, you have the ability to do a forces one effect without incurring paradox and without having to do necessarily anything else. Or maybe in mage terms, you get access to a number of thematic parlor tricks, which is uh, a mechanical way of giving you access to a very basic tool without actually, again, incurring paradox, where that is a case where uh, your avatar is merely tapping into some other reservoir of power rather than doing it itself, which lets you maybe uh, sidestep the, the basic rules. And again, the mantle effects are very well thought out in this game. So you've mentioned the courts. You said there was something else that they could also draw power from. What was that? So in addition to the courts, because of your time in Ferry, you are now able to use the magic of contracts, uh, which are the bargains between the true Fae and reality. And so each of these is a discrete magic power. They are related to the six regalia, uh, which are just kind of thematic divisions of power. And each one lets you do kind of one neat thing. For example, one of the common contracts of the regalia of jewels is Merkblur, which lets you call on the myriad distractions of Arcadia to overwhelm another character's vision. 
or one of the royal contracts of the sword is Red Revenge, where the changeling fills with passion and fury, uh, turning their rage into unparalleled strength and fortitude. And these are things that can be uh, enhanced in different ways, depending on what your seeming is. And uh, there's also a loophole. What does a loophole do? So normally when you use a contract, uh, you have to pay glamour and sometimes willpower to use it. The loophole is if you can meet certain conditions, you can avoid paying for it. So that last example I gave, Red Revenge, normally costs three glamour, which is, which is pretty pricey. But its loophole says if you're using the contract to ex- exact revenge for a lost loved one or friend, you can do it for free. And every contract has a thematic loophole. And they're pretty good. It is one of those ones where it is not so rare that it will never come up, nor is it so common that it's trivial to do. It is better, I'd say, than a lot of the bunks from Changeling the Dreaming, where you just need a little bit of preparation and you can always have it with you, but it is not so uh, remote as some of the trigger conditions for like regaining willpower due to one's nature. So I think that it's right. well-threaded there. You have the cool powers. The last thing that you talked about were like, oaths and how important oaths and contracts are. Is that something that players can engage in with each other, with other entities outside of this system? Yes. Uh, Mechanically, uh, changelings can use glamour to form pledges. So there's a number of of levels of pledges that that kind of define what level of entity you're making the, the pledge with and how it works. So a the the simplest form is that someone makes a promise and you seal it with glamour. So someone says they'll do something for you or they'll do something with a particular condition and you say, okay, now that's a pledge. And so as a changeling, you can do that to anyone, anytime. So changelings are often careful about how they talk to each other. But as changelings, they can also reject a a ceiling. It costs a glamour to create a ceiling, And at that moment, you can also choose to reject that for a glamour. But it's considered very rude to do this. Um, Changelings should be kept to their word unless both parties are agreeing to enter a a pledge. But it gives you a great power over mortals if you can get someone to promise you to do something. You can inflict a minor curse if they fail to meet their end of the bargain. So this could be a, a minor die penalty. To all actions for a scene. It could be a, a larger dice penalty to a specific skill. It could be a, a minor supernatural effect, like all of the milk in their house spoils, or um, cats will, will attack them on sight. So it, it's supposed to be these little weird, like, oh, you've broken the deal with the fae uh, kind, of, kind of curses. You can also strengthen it to make more powerful curses, and then you can say that the curse inflicts damage and you have some narrative control to say how that occurs. I very much like the idea of the Oathborn or this being a merit that someone has the ability to seal agreements like this, or this gives a good framework for negotiating with Umbrood and for implementing it. Because in Mage, otherwise you need to use a, a Geesh, which is Entropy 5. Um, so it's not <laughs> it's, it's not for the, uh, the faint of magic, but for low-level things like this, it seems like a binding oath of some sort or a bargain or a pledge or something like that should be something that can be uh, mechanically within the grasp. The next level is an oath. 
It is a multi-directional agreement, and only changelings, the true fae, and the huntsmen are, are capable of making oaths, because they are the only ones who are closely attuned enough to weird to control it in this way. Oaths are binding. Uh, they basically tie things, tie people together, and they are permanent. The only way to get out of it is to, to, to accept the oath breaker condition, which is fairly significant. But being part of an oath can grant a number of different mechanical benefits, like being able to exchange glamour and willpower, being able to use your magic together. It's one of the ways that changelings create motleys, uh, which are their their version of a, a small social group. And you've made mention to the weird. Is that a power stat in the game? And what is that kind of, is that something you can grow? What does that represent? Yeah, weird is your power stat. And it, it is kind of how fey you are, how well you are, are connected to the power of fairy. In 2nd edition, like I said, that's the power of reciprocity, uh, of oaths and bargains. And so it, it is basically just that. It is your, your fey power stat. Does a bad thing happen as it increases? Uh, yes, it does. You gain frailties, which are basically the weird fairy things that, that happen to you. Often fairies ha- uh, have to follow particular taboos or are uh, harmed by uh, some unusual substance. All the fae are harmed by cold iron, but particular uh, substances may be repellent to particular fae. And frailties, which you gain as you increase weird, are that for changelings. I I think we've kind of talked about most of the uh, core mechanics of the game. Are there any other juicy bits that you're like, I think mages would find this interesting? Oneromancy, we mentioned the, the changeling's ability to, to use dream magic. Changelings can enter uh, the dreams of another being and basically use a dream system that is similar to hedge weaving, where through their actions in the dream, they can influence and change the dream. And to that, uh, they can gain a number of, of benefits. So some of the things that they can do are just change what's going on in the dream at present, uh, which can build them up to an advantage so they can use their more powerful effects, like getting the dreamer to reveal a secret or or continuing to change the dream. Once you kind of get your hooks into the dream and start inflicting paradigm shifts, uh, the dream starts to recognize you as an intruder, so it gets more difficult to manipulate the dream. Uh, but it also means that you have burrowed further into control of the dream. And like in a movie Inception, you can implant an idea in the dreamer. So depending on, on what level you have achieved with your shift conditions, you can exert more powerful effects. And so these can be as simple as, oh, I get a, a bonus equal to my empathy to all interactions with this dreamer in the waking world because I've put subliminal cues all the way up to Sometime in the next 24 hours, they are going to do something that I have implanted in their mind. And at the highest level, there's there's no restrictions on that. This can also be a breaking point uh, for changelings, uh, where where they will suffer and have that break with reality because they are imposing their will over others. It's another area where they are inflicting the kind of harm that was inflicted on them, but but sometimes you, you do bad things for the right reasons. 
so it sounds like it's another case where something that is kind of hand wavy in old world of darkness they're like yeah we've summarized it concisely and beautifully in four pages have fun complete with systems and such um it is four pages but it's not four consecutive pages okay so (laughs) So. minus one so uh you've talked about the trauma and the idea of breaking points mage doesn't really have a system for that we have the willpower check and that's about it does the game give you any systems for dealing with processing trauma because it seems like a lot of the experiences that a a changeling could have in fairy are probably similar to a lot of the circumstances that could cause a mage to awaken and it seems like if there is a good system for that that is something that mage players can take to be like yes I was part of this cult. I did awaken and it haunts me to this day. And this is how it comes up. How does that work in Changeling? I'll I'll take a step back and say all of Chronicles of Darkness uh, has the idea of a morality trait. This is, in the old world of darkness context, this is most similar to vampires having humanity and it mostly being a downward spiral. But they, they took that and they said, you know what? Everybody has something like this. So if you're a bog standard mortal... Uh, you have the idea of your morality. And if you, you do things that are traumatic, uh, or if you do things that are against your, your uh, conscience or extreme trauma happens to you, you can have uh, go through a morality-breaking point. Changelings, because of their kind of unique experience, uh, take that and add a layer to the system. So instead of having a simple up-and-down scale where you're rolling against, uh, they, they have, their trait is called clarity. And it is another health track. You can take bashing, lethal, and aggravated clarity damage depending on uh, what kind of breaking point you're uh, involved in. And so some examples are if you break a mundane promise, that's a a one-die breaking point where uh, one die is rolled and, and may inflict clarity damage. Example of a uh, level three is um, someone who you trust tells you that your experiences are unreal. When you reach higher levels of weird, so simply reaching weird three is a, a three dice breaking point because you are committing to the path of being fey. Uh, breaking a formal oath or pledge, we were just talking about the importance there, is a four die breaking point for changelings. Uh, going a month without contact of another human or changeling is a four die breaking point. And kind of what happens when this health track fills? You suffer clarity conditions as your your health track is marked. So the condition system in Chronicles of Darkness basically inflicts minor penalties on your character uh, that that you can interact with in a mechanical way. And as you suffer clarity damage, you uh, take a, a persistent condition. Uh, so you can have uh, delusional or distracted or a fugue state or uh, uh, shaken or spooked. And all of these have a, a particular mechanical penalty or, or trigger to them that until you are, are able to, to heal that clarity damage, you are going to be suffering from, from this condition. So if we're going to steal this into Mage, I, I think it would be interesting to have it either tied to paradigm or experience, where suddenly... Uh, with each point of a retay or something, your character needs to make a metaphysical statement about how the universe operates, and when they act, act contrary to it, that is something that can trigger potential damage to this damage track, where, for instance, your character starts out with, the old spirits must be obeyed. And 
a mix of cosmological and personal ones never submit to unjust power. And whenever that comes up in game, the storyteller makes a determination. And again, you incur these conditions, or maybe your magic gets more difficult or alternatively easier to do. I would be fine with both. Um, I think both are kind of justifiable to kind of express the degree to which your character's view of themselves in the world has taken damage. Alternatively, this is how we could represent quiet as kind of a magical damage track that whenever you you kill another person with magic that is a three die roll against Jor or whenever you use the wonder of magic to fix something statically against its nature you take three dice against a a denial uh, quiet track or something like that I'm not quite sure how to get it to work out but I mean the game seemingly gives you a system for it are any of those picked based on the circumstances under which you were in fairy they should be um, your storyteller decides which condition you suffer, and it should be thematically appropriate for your character. So this seems more like a replacement for quiet, necessarily, than a replacement for paradox. It, yes. Yeah. Nice. Um, where do you think in a Mage Chronicle this type of changeling should pop up? Well, that depends on how you, how you want to fit them into your, your world of darkness. So I, I think you could have them as a, a hidden other society. And if uh, you say, oh, that the true fae are these unbrewed entities that are an unusual kind of unbrewed that can come into the mud ball and, and steal away mortals, you could turn to changelings who have escaped their clutches and, and have those fragments of power as a, as a potential ally. Or those changelings might compete with you to recover particular uh, magical resources. Uh, if you're introducing the hedge as a, an element, maybe changelings are masters of the hedge. Maybe they have hedge weaving and, and it is easier for them. They know the paths, so your, your mages may make bargains with them um, as guides into the other worlds. I mean, depending on how you set up your cosmology, there's a lot of different things you could do. Yeah, and you mentioned the hedge. Uh, expert navigators, in mage, we have the idea that there are a couple zones that go everywhere. Uh, you can enter the virtual, the digital web without incurring avatar storm damage, and theoretically it connects to everywhere else. It's kind of hard. Likewise, the path of the wit for the verbena, I like the idea of the hedge is something that mages have just ignored for centuries because they got so good at crossing the gauntlet. And now with an avatar storm raging, there's this other way. And they're like, oh, dip, how do we do this? Ooh, yeah. I like that. I also like the idea that they would likely have trade with certain paradigms that are familiar, that have a notion of the old ways or folk practices or something like that. And I could certainly see a mage coming up with a paradigm informed by the set of contracts. Maybe you find a mage amongst a group of changelings and it just so happens that Paradox takes on the form of the Huntsman or something like that whenever they violate it, because Paradox should take the form of the paradigm being violated. The other thing that I thought was neat is there is kind of a changeling allied group, people that have touched the hedge or touched fairy, but have not been taken in completely. Uh, what are they called? Like, do you recall? Uh, they are the Fae Touched, and these are people who were bound with some promise to a person before they were taken into the hedge by the true Fae, and were able to use that, that connection, that oath, even though it wasn't sealed as an oath, to follow into the hedge and, and get kind of get their hand, their hand around the weird without becoming fully Fae creatures. Um, and they have a small collection of powers 
Um, they have a collection of uh, traits that they have to do, but likewise, they no longer have that same clarity track from what I understand. So they're kind of like uh, kinfolk to the Garu, seemingly, that they have just a, a taste of it. They're, they're not quite, I, I would say that they, are, they have significantly more autonomy than ghouls, but they, they still have that uh, weird other thing that is, that is following them about. And I think it would be perfectly reasonable for a mage to experience that. Or for one of your allies to, I could perfectly see, for instance, um, somebody who had undertaken a geesh or some other social promise who was drawn into the hedge somehow, and that promise prevented them from being fully taken, but still they have been touched by it. They may be pursued, and now an ally of yours uh, needs to be protected. I could also see the fey touched or something like them being created as a paradox effect an unintentional effect that that your magic has now seeped out and pulled this person in maybe through a, a correspondence or a yeah or especially <laughs> well, if you bring a mortal along with you uh through the umbra and and do it, some some interface with the middle umbra and something goes particularly bad and someone is tied to someone's court now uh in a yeah. very basic way but it gives boy howdy uh, of the new world of dark of the chronicles of darkness games i just feel like the lost is just dripping with options and oh yeah and another one that i thought was interesting is when you are taken by the true fae something is left behind what is that so the true fae understand we talk about weird being re- a, a, a power of reciprocity so the true fae understand that they can't just take you out of the mortal world without leaving something behind, without making right with a payment. And so they leave behind a facsimile of you, um, your fetch. And this is something cobbled together. In first edition, there were systems to say, oh, the fetches are a little bit different depending on what they're cobbled together from. Is it toys? Is it is it uh, something broken? Is it bits of glass? Uh, is it a natural substance? Is it like dirt and, and insects? Uh, but they take that and they wrap around it a bit of glamour that makes a copy of you. It should be you, but not quite, so that some people may recognize that it is not you, or or that when you come back and you see what your fetch has done with your life, you react in some way. So this this could be that they gave up art and settled down and took the corporate job, or the con- conversely, they gave up law school and went and lived in a commute, hippie commune, the thing you always want do but never never could let go of the money and power that you thought law would give you or uh, and this is an example that they give in fiction or book the changeling character is trans and their fetch is not and so their their fetch is is not the right gender from their perspective so your 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 fetch should be you but also somehow not you and when you return your fetch recognizes that they are not quite themselves and through that you can either develop a relationship with your fetch and they can gain more power or you may end up killing your fetch and trying to reclaim your life so it's one of those kind of very personal challenges for changelings to say what do i do with this copy of myself who has been living my life and has connections to my loved ones who may not recognize me anymore because I have been changed by my time in fairy, and what does it mean to to deal with them? Do I let them keep that life, glad that it is no longer mine, or is that something I want to try to reclaim? And one of the things that struck me about this is I like the idea that whenever a character crosses the gauntlet, they never really leave. 
that part of the metaphysical process of crossing over is that some other entity kind of gets to walk around in your body with the agreement of largely doing what you would have done. So when your character goes on a several month umbral journey, there is something left behind and it answers the question. I also like this as a way of representing systematically the standard solution is to fake your own death or to be certifiably dead. But there's a number of paradigms where having a fetch take over your mortal life I think is a perfectly reasonable option. And I think it's super interesting to have the character that represents what you would be like if you never awakened maybe, or something like that, or maybe part of the agreement uh, that you make when you join the technocracy is that you are replaced. Otherwise it would leave a lot of questions and suddenly you have this progenitor clone that um, maybe Chaz's fetch likes coffee and is a big fan of old world of darkness um (laughs) or or fetch terry does a long-running podcast on mage the awakening i think the idea of being replaced or something being in your stead and then the moral questions that comes around like the fetch is an intelligent agent Uh, the idea that like you just get to kill your fetch i think is a very good moral problem with an obvious answer it's still murder Uh, is there any other place where you think fetches could fit into a mage the ascension game Again, paradox. Fetches, in, in especially in first edition, were presented as often detrimental. So, like, maybe your fetch is also an, an abuser of some kind. And so uh, I could see particularly bad paradox creating a, a doppelganger of you that is the bad twin. You've escaped from fairy. Is there anything looking for you once you have, or did the true fae just kind of move on with their lives? Oh, there's all kinds of threats. So the true fae may come themselves, but more often they will send their agents. Sometimes those are loyalist changelings, changelings who are let out of Arcadia but still kept on a leash. They have all of the powers and abilities you do, but they will be pulled back by the true fae, uh, and so they serve them. The other kind of main antagonist that gets sent after you are the huntsmen. The huntsmen were the original inhabitants of Arcadia. So they are fae, but they now serve the true fae, and that the true fae basically get to steal the huntsman's heart and replace it with one of their titles, and the huntsman bears the true fae's title and acts in their name, and so is kind of uh, dominated by the true fae's will through imparting that title. And they are coming for you. And they are quite potent and they are quite hard to stop. And that's one of those things where that's the knob the storyteller gets to set, right? How present the huntsmen are. Yes, it is. It is a, definitely a storyteller knob. And to me, the way I saw this in Mage is what if there was a group that through a set of promises and bargains or sheer power was able to co-op the power of a paradox spirit. And instead of Wrinkle going out to punish mages who abuse time magic, they become the arbitrary agent of this demon to track down those who had broken promises with it. And to me, especially in a long-running campaign, paradox spirits, they kind of operate by fixed rules and players kind of get an idea of how to deal with them. And to suddenly co-op that by somebody having seized the power of it, I think raises very interesting cosmological questions. What is the nature of a paradox spirit? Um, As well as what happens when other agents in the Ascension War have the ability to co-opt seemingly this very foundational bit in how this war is fought. Um, can you stop a huntsman? You can. They are very potent foes, like you said. Uh, one of the ways to do it is that the uh, true fae will hide the huntsman's heart in a mortal. And so you can go and, and recover the huntsman's heart through dreams. 
and then trade it to the Huntsman for control over the True Phase title. And this should be very difficult, but is one way that you can deal with this challenge. Uh, otherwise, you kind of have to destroy them, or, or and destroying them is going to be real hard. They very much feel like the hit marks of this game in that it is very easy to set them up so that they are not the sign to stand and fight. They are the sign to run. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, mechanically, if you use mundane means, they will just come back again. Their heart and title, the title is undestroyable and their heart is elsewhere, so it is impossible to stop them. But um, the idea of nemeses that are narratively driven, I think, is is pretty fascinating. Uh, and likewise here, I could certainly see characters having wronged the wrong umbral preceptor or uh, done something against an exemplar or something who has this implacable foe that is kind of sent against them, that it is the story to figure out how to placate them, uh, once again, through this game of titles and such any other thoughts on uh, either changeling the lost or how we can jam it or its elements into mage i love changeling the lost like i said at the top of the show it it is in my top tier of chronicles of darkness games uh, it's hard to pick just one top game i i guess if I, if i had to it would be changeling i think there's a lot here that you could you could insert into mage that would fit well with some magey weirdness so yes, it is Chronicles of Darkness. Yes, you'd have to do a bunch of, of rules work to, to jam it in. But the concepts are certainly rich for, for mining. All it needs is a book of Metaplot, and I would play the shit out of it. So, <laughs> so uh, Chess, thank you so much for joining us. Are there any other projects or endeavors that you're up to that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I have recently wrapped uh, The Fall of Jara on the Story Told podcast, which is my long-running, exalted, dragon-blooded actual play that had a lovely conclusion. And we are starting the Pain in the Dice podcast, where Chaz and Terry talk about games. That's my podcasting universe. From a, a writing perspective, I, I do have a number of Storypath Nexus and Storyteller's Vault uh, projects that are up. If you're interested in Changeling, uh, something we didn't talk about was Entitlements, which are essentially noble titles that come with magic power uh, that you can claim as a Changeling. And I've been slowly converting all of those from 1st edition to 2nd edition, which is a monumental task, uh, but, th but the first six are, are up. Uh, I'm selling them in packs of three. There's some lovely new art of them on the covers that I'm working on, so, so definitely go check those out if... Changeling has piqued your fancy, because you could pull those in without the rest of Changeling and still have some weird antagonists to bring into Mage. And then I am also, uh, I guess, back in the podcast universe, starting a Trinity Continuum podcast with friend of the show Josh Heath and podcaster Scott Cuban of Polyhedron. So we are trying to get a bank of episodes recorded before we go live. Uh, we recorded our eighth episode yesterday. And so that that'll probably be start. We'll probably start airing that around the end of 2021. Chaz, thank you so much for your time. Lovely talking with you as always. This has been Mage the Podcast, where if you were pulled into Fairy, we'd totally come and try and get you. Or at least we'd take down your fetch if they started being a jerk at your monthly Mage game. Our show is made possible by our executive producers. Those supporters are Buck Farmer, Oracle of the Passionate Summer Court, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Keen Winter Court, Jay Widener, Oracle of the Hopeful Summer Court, and Mikhail, Oracle of the Wise Fall Court. Also, we are supported by Alex, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Birdo, Boo, Boogers to the Sixth, Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Schreiber, Dan Svensson, Dennis Osborne, Derek Simsek, Elliot Osborne, Gargalenoir, George Lara, Guy Conan Stewart, 
Eobel, Isabel Castillo, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Biggs, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., Josh, John Magnuson, Josh H., Josh Heath, Carl Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aaron, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robard the Robot, Rob H, Ryan Hilton, Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, W Starter, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out this episode is to Mikhail, and I've created a slightly longer piece of fiction that I will say after I do the rest of the outro. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at matesthepodcast at gmail.com or at matesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash matesthepodcast. If you like this, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. This is a short snippet of fiction inspired by Chaz as a Changeling the Lost Maids the Ascension mashup and dedicated to executive producer Mikhail. Marcus wasn't sure at first that he entered the gateway to the Great Maze correctly. He knew not even a lick of knowledge and spirit to guide him. He had knocked seven times on the door of the abandoned mansion's servant's exit, seven times as he had been told, with a gap between each knock taking twice as long as the previous. This meant that the gap between the last two knocks was thirty-two times the gap between the first two. Training to do this was practically a rote unto itself, but he found playing row, row, row your boat around in his head, he was able to sink the knock with certain downbeats. What he lacked for in spirit, he made up for in mind, splitting the voice in his head effortlessly into four voices, keeping reasonably good time with one another. Time knowledge, too, could have made this far easier, but that he also lacked. After a few tries, he felt the slight whoosh of air that supposedly signaled the gateway's opening. He also smelled cinnamon, and what he was told was the smell of differential calculus. This particular entrance to the Great Maze was formed a century ago by the first one, Kalanangata, she whose thoughts are made aromas. Sure, the other mages in the Chantry of the Ever-Nodding Eye called it a labyrinth, as it was supposed to always take you to your destination, given enough time. But his destination wasn't a place, as so many other mages used. Instead, he wanted to find something in the maze itself. Before he joined the Undying Fellowship, one of the great traditions, when he first awakened during the car accident that took his left leg, after the shower of glass, the crunch of crushed bone, and the tear of skin, he felt himself sink through the car, then through the pavement, then through the very earth beneath him. First then he saw the maze, falling through it towards oblivion, which would have been his final destination had the unsmiling ancient not pulled him back. He fell further through the maze than most, as he nearly slipped the mortal coil for long enough that the fake crows of the maze grazed off bits of himself. Even though one's avatar is supposed to be an idealized representation of the self, these birds pulled away something. In his case, his avatar's other-like. Here in the Great Maze, having navigated the paths created by the First Ones as they plucked mortals to teach them terrible insights and unwanted wisdom, making Swiss cheese of time and space, he knew that the lost bit of his avatar lay somewhere within the great nest of some umbral magpie, or whatever had torn it from him as he fell during his first near-death experience. He was here to reclaim that lost bit. In death, one falls through the maze, the direction of gravity rotating as you're pulled towards the shadow exit that went to gentle Lethe. Having stepped in as a very much alive mage, Gravity was more to his suiting, and he had yet to bounce off the hedge wall or the strange abandoned stalls that lined the maze with kitsch signs for cigarettes and something called Zima. He had wandered for hours through the hedge maze composed of historical buildings just tall enough that he couldn't see, leap, or launch himself over. Each was wrong in his own way, as if described by someone and then built by someone else who had never seen a building before. The clocks had the wrong number of hours, and the entrance doors were on the second floor sometimes. Windows had gardens behind them, 
and open fire plugs flooded the area with light or darkness instead of water. His awareness of the history of Washington Square Park as a mass grave let him go through the domain of the accusative zombies of freedom's hunger, but now he found himself with the sun low in the sky and the past that guided him physically narrowing. He didn't know what darkness or night was like in the Great Maze. Few spent long enough in here to know it, as few spent long enough in here to know a single sunset, as it was always noon when you stepped in, and most mages quickly made their way from here to the realms beyond, but he was here on other business, to find the bits the crows had taken that prevented him from being whole. He thought that he recognized Evelyn, his chantry mate, an agent of the unsmiling ancient. Before saying hello, he remembered that the memory cobalts fashioned visages from the dreams that trickled behind you as you traveled. The odds of it being a ruse were too high, and besides, she had bested him at Sertiman after he refused to clean her laboratory. She would either gloat or ask when the work was to be done. Provisions throughout the Great Maze were plentiful. As it was strewn with the 10,000 things Philadelphians forgot each day that fell into sewer grates or were left in taxis or remained on buses after their riders hurriedly made it to the doors. He was eating his fourth tasty cake pack for what would have to be his dinner when he saw the telltale signs of the corvids he sought. Glistening and sitting half disposed in a smaller than normal trash can, the deep purple feather that emitted the sound of a sobbing child when held to his forehead that was the sure sign of a faded crow. The sobbing gave him power, and his fiery aura manifested and burnt away the garbage strewn about the brick and thorn-faced facade of the maze. He was the chosen of Michael, and nearly an adept in forces. He inhaled and began the prana to track the breeze that a hermetic wind mage had taught him before the fall of the hermetic chantry orbiting Venus. The ripples of forgetting that the faded crow had left, as it cut through the air, was as clear as footsteps on a beach now, and faded with time, but for now, and for a few hours longer, they would shine and he could follow them. After hours of searching, flames wreathed his fist, synced with his own breathing. Today at last his avatar would become whole, or be torn apart trying. If not successful in this life, he was sure he'd be back to finish. The fire spread, the crows in the distance took flight, and the next page in the life of Marcus who guides the wheel of life began. To be continued, maybe, or I don't know, maybe I do a different segment. If you like this a little bit, tell us. If you thought it was super stupid, tell us anyway. Now, go change reality. Bye.